Perik Zion, Pasuk Yudal, it opens up with the beginning of the actual Makkas. Now, it's very important to understand that each of the Makkas was brought for a very specific reason. The Malbim makes an important observation. He says that if you understand, Hashem could have taken the Jewish nation out of Mitzrayim in any which way. Hashem is very powerful and very mighty. Hashem could have made it that the walls of Mitzrayim fell down. He could have made it that the Jews suddenly appeared in the desert. Hashem could have done any which way to have brought the Jews out. Yet, Hashem brought the Jewish nation out of Mitzrayim in a very specific, exact way over a long period of time for the specific reason that Hashem was doing some, something with the Makkas other than getting the Jewish nation out of Mishraim. The Malbim says that the first nine of the Makkas had nothing to do with getting Paro to let the Jews out of Mishraim. Hashem knew that Paro wasn't going to let them out. We'll see after the sixth Makkah already Hashem is hechpet is libo. The intention, the focus of the first nine Makkas as a Malbim was strictly to demonstrate to the Mitzrim and to the Jewish nation that Hashem is the creator and the one who maintains every facet of this world. Each of the Makkas focuses on another element of Hashem's control over nature, showing that Hashem was the Bore and is now currently the maintainer. And as we go through each of the Makkas, we'll try to see how in fact each Makka demonstrates another aspect of control over nature. Pasuk Tezvav, open, Pasuk Yudal opens up, Hashem Hashem Samosha Kaved Leif Paro, Paro's heart is hardened. He's hardened his heart. He's refused to send out the nation. Go to Paro in the morning. Behold, he will be at the water. You should go out to meet him on the edge of the riverbank. And the staff that turned into a snake, you should take in your hand. What Hashem has said to Moshe is that Paro refused to listen. The first sign was simply the Nachash, when the snake turned into, when the sticks turned into a snake, there was a very clear sign, Paro refused to listen. Now Hashem is giving the second oath, the second sign to Paro. We're all familiar with the Medrash, but it bears repeating that there was a particular reason why Hashem told Moshe to go out to Paro at the Nile River. From the time of Yaakov Avinu, the Paros had a very strong control over nature. When Yaakov first came down some over 200 years earlier, he gave a bracha to Paro. From the time of that bracha, when Paro went out to the Nile, the Nile would come out to greet him. Now this Paro, it became a type of part of the being a Paro that you made yourself into an Avodah Apparently the Paros believed it Perik Zion, Pasuk Yudal, it opens up with the beginning of the actual Makkas. Now, it's very important to understand that each of the Makkas was brought for a very specific reason. The Malbim makes an important observation. He says that if you understand, Hashem could have taken the Jewish nation out of Mitzrayim in any which way. Hashem is very powerful and very mighty. Hashem could have made it that the walls of Mitzrayim fell down. He could have made it that the Jews suddenly appeared in the desert. Hashem could have done any which way to have brought the Jews out. Yet, Hashem brought the Jewish nation out of Mitzrayim in a very specific, exact way over a long period of time for the specific reason 
that Hashem was doing some, something with the Makkas other than getting the Jewish nation out of Mishraim. The Malbim says that the first nine of the Makkas had nothing to do with getting Paro to let the Jews out of Mishraim. Hashem knew that Paro wasn't going to let them out. We'll see after the sixth Makkah already Hashem is hechpet is libo. The intention, the focus of the first nine Makkas of the Malbim was strictly to demonstrate to the Mitzrim and to the Jewish nation that Hashem is the creator and the one who maintains every facet of this world. Each of the Makkas focuses on another element of Hashem's control over nature, showing that Hashem was the Bore and is now currently the maintainer. And as we go through each of the Makkas, we'll try to see how in fact each Makkah demonstrates another aspect of control over nature. Pasuk Tezvov opens up, Hashem Samosha Kaved Leif Paro, Paro's heart is hardened. He's hardened his heart. He's refused to send out the nation. Go to Paro in the morning. Behold, he will be at the water. You should go out to meet him on the edge of the riverbank. And the staff that turned into a snake, you should take in your hand. What Hashem has said to Moshe is that Paro refused to listen. The first sign was simply the Nachash, when the snake turned into, when the sticks turned into a snake, there was a very clear sign, Paro refused to listen. Now Hashem is giving the second os, the second sign to Paro. We're all familiar with the Medrash, but it bears repeating that there was a particular reason why Hashem told Moshe to go out to Paro at the Nile River. From the time of Yaakov Avinu, the Paros had a very strong control over nature. When Yaakov first came down some over 200 years earlier, he gave a bracha to Paro. From the time of that bracha, when Paro went out to the Nile, the Nile would come out to greet him. Now this Paro, it became a type of part of the being a Paro that you made yourself into an Avodah Apparently the Paros believed it to a large extent. This particular Paro sincerely believed that he was an Avodah Zarah. When Moshe came to him, he was angry, really angry because he implied that Paro did not create the Nile. In any case, the problem is that if you're a human being, you go to the bathroom. If you're a human being and you go to the bathroom, all of your constituents know that you're not a god. They know you're a human being. So Paro used to have the minhag of going to the bathroom once a day. He would go in the Nile early in the morning, go to the bathroom, he would relieve himself, and the rest of the day he wouldn't use the bathroom pretending as if he were a god. Now it's an interesting amount of self-control, be it as it may. It's, a, it's an impressive self-control. But the point is that he was, in the morning is when he would go out to the Nile. Hashem said, go find them at the Nile. The place that is the source of the Vodazar, that's what the uh, Mishram serve as one of their Vodazars was the Nile. Find him in a time when he's obviously acting like a human, not like a god. And tell him the message I'm going to tell you. You should say to him, Elokeia Ivrim, the God of the Jews, Shalachani Elecha sent me to you, Lamar saying, Shalaches Ami, send out my nation, Viabduni Bamidbar, and let them serve me in the desert. Vinelor Shamatat Ko, and you haven't listened up until now. Again, note, Moshe Rabbeinu is not saying free them. Moshe Rabbeinu is saying in the name of Hashem, Hashem is telling him, tell Paro that I want them to serve me in the Midbar, and you haven't listened until now. Ko Amar Hashem, this is what Hashem has said. 
Vizos teida, with this you shall know, Kini Hashem, that I am Hashem. Kini Anochi Make Bemate Shabiyadi, behold, I am going to smite, smite, with the stick in my hand, Alamayam on the water Shabiyar, the water in the Nile, Benehef Chuladam, they will turn into blood. So Moshe is supposed to say this message to Paru. The fish in the Nile, Thomas, will die. And the Nile will stink. And the Mitzrim will not be able to drink water from the Yor. Now, the Mepharshim on, on this passage are very clear. There was a reason why the fish had to die. In other words, why do we have to know that the fish has to die and that the, the Yor has to let out a stench? So the Svona is very clear, explains to us that Hashem was showing that this was not achizas enayim, this was not an optical illusion. Meaning, the Mitzrim were quite capable of various different things, including machshefa, including using shadim, and also optical illusions. Simply, they might have thought that the water turned to a red-colored substance, which is something that the Mitzrim were capable of doing. However, in a red-colored substance, if it's just an optical illusion or just a change of coloring, the fish would live. Water is clear, odorless, and viscous is thin. Blood is red-colored, thick, and smells. When the fish died, they died because it wasn't water any longer. It had changed molecularly from water into blood. And the sign of this was the fact that all the fish would die to be a demonstration that it's actually real blood. Moshe Hashem said to Moshe, Emor Aaron, say to Aaron, Kach Matra, Aaron, take your staff on the Teyadcha Meimei Mitzrayim, and place your hand on the waters of Mitzrayim, on the Rosam, on their rivers, Ayoreim, on their, Rashi explains the difference between the Yor and a river, Valagmeim, and on their bodies of waters, Valkomikveimeim, any gathering of water, Vyudam, and there should be blood, Vyadam, Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim, there should be blood in all Eretz Mitzrayim, Uba Itzim, Uba Vanim, and in the wood, and in the stones. Vayasu came Moshe Aaron. Moshe and Aaron did this. Kashesiv Hashem as Hashem commanded. Vayaron b'mate they lifted up the stick. Vayaches hamayim and they hit the water Shabiyar that was in the Nile. Ene paro to the eyes of paro. Ule ene avodav and to the eyes of his servants. Vayafu kolamayim Shabiyar ladam and all of the water that was in the Nile turned into blood. Vadaga Shabiyar mesa the fish died. Vayiva Shabiyar the the Nile let out a stench. And the Mitzrim could not drink water from the Nile. And the blood was in all of Eretz Mitzrayim. Now, what's very important to understand is that later on in Perak Yud, Hashem says that I'm going to give these Osim to you and your children to know that I am Hashem and that I am the creator of the earth. What the Mitzrim saw in this particular Nace was a phenomenal control over nature, but even more so, they saw something very, very fundamental about life. There were many trips, apparently, that Paro had been visited by Moshe and Aaron. The first time, we're told. The Pesach doesn't tell us the second time, but we are told at the end of Perakeh that these two Shotrim, when they're coming out, they're coming into the palace, who do they meet coming out but Moshe and Aaron? Apparently Moshe and Aaron would go on a daily basis to warn Paro to let the Jewish people go. And these Shotrim said to Paro, said to Moshe and Aaron, Lama Hivashtim. 
Look what you've done. Hashem should judge. You've made our smell disgusting. To put a sword in their hand to kill us. Basically, you've worsened our lot. At which point, Moshe Rabbeinu apparently heard what they said, felt very broken over the fact that he came to redeem, he came to save the Jewish nation, and instead they're being further oppressed, and he turns to Hashem and says, Lama Lama why have you done bad to these people? Lama Zeshlachtani, why did you send me? We discussed at a different point that Moshe was actually held accountable for what he said, he should not have said that. At this point, Hashem tells Moshe to go back another time. Now it's interesting that Moshe did not yet perform the various osos or mosim in front of Paru. Remember, there were three osos that Hashem gave to Moshe. The water into blood, the hand into saras, and the snake, the stick turning into a snake. He didn't do them. The second time, or actually now the latter time that the Pesach tells us that he goes to Paro, now Hashem says, I want you to do that mo-face that I told you to do. When he comes in this next time, he says to Paro the same words, let the Jewish nation go, let them celebrate in the, in the Midbar, and I'm going to show you a sign to show you what exactly how powerful Hashem is. At which point he takes the, the staff. Now this staff was very unusual. I don't know exactly the material. It sounds like it was made out of some kind of very fancy, precious stone. It certainly was unique in the sense it was pre-Mysabracious. It had the Simon de Sachadash Bachav on it. And it was a very unique and unusual stick. Moshe gives the stick to Aaron. Aaron throws it to the ground and it turns into a snake. Not only wasn't Paro impressed, Paro said the words, Come here. And he calls for four and five-year-old children to come to his throne. His wife was one of the head machshefas in Mitzrayim, and apparently his children were amongst the most skilled. And Paro said, you're bringing machshefa, you're bringing Kishuf to Mitzrayim. We're all learning in Kishuf, and his four and five-year-old children started doing Kishuf. Then his Khartoumim, his various wise men, took their sticks and threw it on the ground. And apparently... Through Kishuf, most Rishon learned the sticks actually change into snakes. And there were these huge slithering snakes, this whole pile, huge pile of slithering snakes running around at the palace, on the palace floor of Paro. At which point Aaron picks up his stick, it's actually a snake, it turns back into the staff, and now all the Khartoumim's sta- staffs are there gathered. Paro now sees something that threatens his throne. Because at this point, Aaron takes the stick and he throws it on the floor and it swallows up all of the sticks of all of the Khartoumim and it remains as thin as possible. As thin as it began, it swallowed them all up and remained that size, which was a mo-face that Paro could not fathom. And Paro at this point said to himself, if he says to the stick to swallow me and my throne, it would do it and there'd be nothing I could do. And if you note, the Ramban says, you will not find, from this point on, you will never find Paro saying the words, I will not send the nation out. From this point on, he procrastinates, he says various things, leave the women, leave the children, but he doesn't, from this point on, he doesn't say the words, I will not send the nation, because he was petrified. He was terrified. From this moment on, he recognized that this was a sign clearly that these were not just regular machshefim. Moshe and Aaron were legitimate in speaking in the name of Hashem. 
But at this point, he's not willing to give in. And we'll see that he spends many, many months in this state of obstinance and refuses to hear the truth and remains in that state until the very end of the Yisrael Mitzrayim. And to understand that, I'd like to just spend a moment discussing a, a Gemara that brings down an interesting, interesting event. The Gemara tells us in Tainis Dachafei that Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, who was a very great Tana, once saw his daughter very sad. It was Arab Shabbos, and his daughter looked depressed. Amra, he said to her, why are you, why are you so upset? Amra lay, she said back to him, I had a kli of chomets, I had a kli of vinegar, and by mistake, instead of pouring oil into the Shabbos candles, I poured in vinegar. I lit the light for Shabbos, and I'm afraid it's in just a minute it's going to extinguish. So, to which Rebbe Hanina Mendoza said, Why do you care? Whoever said, the one who said that oil should light, should say now that vinegar should light. And the Brisa tells us that that light actually lit the entire day and lasted until after Havdalah. So this is a Brisa that many of us are familiar with. But I'd like to ask one simple question on this event. And that is as follows. We know, even if a Tana is great enough to bring about miracles, we know the law is that one is not allowed to, and certainly not supposed to, rely on a miracle for various reasons. It would seem that Rebuchanina Mendoza violated that rule. After all, we know that by the properties of nature, oil lights, vinegar doesn't. What he was asking Hashem was to do a miracle, which would seem to be a violation of the rule of Ein Som so I think if we understand Hashem's relationship with nature, I think we'll understand what in fact Rabbi Hanina Mendoza did, and we may come to a better understanding of exactly what was happening in Mitzrayim. The Ramban tells us that when Hashem created the world, the world does not exist on its own. Matter, atoms, molecules, quarks do not exist on their own. They exist because Hashem maintains them and holds them into position. Meaning, typically, we tend to take a yesh, miyesh approach to creation. We normally, whenever we as human beings deal with anything, if I take a piece of wood, and I take another piece of wood and bang them together, my new creation, this house, is the way I look at Hashem's creation on a grander scale. Meaning, I build a little house, I take some wood, I take some bricks, I take some mortar, put it together. I look at Hashem's world, Hashem's maybe a bigger creator and better, but ultimately it's the same function. The reality is that the Bria is nothing at all like a yesh meyesh creation. When I take two pieces of wood, there are two pieces of wood in existence, and all I've done is taken two existing elements and put them together. When Hashem brought forth from nothing, from absolute complete void <coughs> matter, that is a very different Bria. Bringing forth from absolute complete nothing physicality, bringing forth matter, meaning bringing forth quarks, molecules, the whole physical substance, isn't just something that you do once. It's something that requires constant maintenance. Meaning, when Hashem created rocks, it wasn't that Hashem created a rock and left it there. That rock, that physical substance, to remain needs constant infusion of energy. The relationship between Hashem and this world is akin to my relationship to a dream. If you imagine I'm standing on a street corner and it's a cold, bitter day waiting for a bus, and I start da daydreaming about a beautiful beach, it's 
sunny and it's warm, it's 80 degrees, and I can see the swans gently floating, and I feel the sun warming me, and all of a sudden, splash! A bus comes and splashes me with snow. I wake up from my dream, gone are the swans, gone is the hot sand, and I'm back to reality. The relationship of the world to Hashem is that any physical matter only exists as long as Hashem could be concentrates on that and keeps that in existence. So, if for a moment Hashem would stop infusing energy into the Bria, into any matter of creation, it's not like it would be destroyed, it's that it would have no fulfillment, it wouldn't exist. It only exists because Hashem is constantly keeping it, similar to the dreamer keeps the dream in his mind, Hashem keeps the world in existence by constantly giving energy, constantly keeping in existence. Says Ramban, if you want to know what Teva, nature is, nature is merely the laws via which Hashem continues to run the world that He created and maintains. Meaning, we make a mistake. We think that if you take a seed and plant it in the ground, what happens is there's a cellular process, the cells divide, and there's DNA that tells this cell to become the chloroplast, and this cell to become the bark, etc., throughout the whole process of growth. The reality is that every one of those cells and every one of those molecules are constantly infused with energy by Hashem. The whole process is because Hashem is giving it energy and keeping it and teaching the cells to divide and keeping them in existence. And the whole process, Hashem's constant involvement. Nature is only the laws via which Hashem does what He does. Hashem wrote a law that the sun will rise every morning. Hashem wrote a law that apples will fall down. Hashem wrote a law that light will expand. Those are the laws via which Hashem constantly runs the world. But it's always Hashem doing Hashem's involvement. Hashem keeping every molecule and every process and every law of nature in existence. This being said, if a person is able to cut through all of the lies of this world, if a person is able to become purely spiritual, see Hashem, and understand Hashem's relationship to this world, a person is able to look at a candle and say, Wow! That is Hashem infusing energy into the oil. That is Hashem controlling those molecules. That is Hashem allowing the electron bonds to break, give off their energies to create a flame. Well, there's no distinction to Hashem to doing that as to telling vinegar to light. Now there's a granted there's a different molecular structure to vinegar than there is to oil, and according to the present laws of nature, vinegar is incapable of giving off its electron bonds in a way that it will ignite at such a low temperature. But that's only one of the laws that Hashem wrote. There's no difference to the fact that Hashem is there controlling it, being involved, and allowing it to happen. Rabbi Hanina Mendoza looked at every element of this world and saw Hashem. He looked at a rock and saw Hashem maintaining that. He looked at a tree and saw Hashem holding it. He looked at a mountain and said, Wow, look at the power, Hashem. You're keeping that every fiber, every element of this world into existence. And when Rabbi Hanina Mendoza looked at an oil with a wick inside it lighting, he saw Hashem giving off that energy, telling those <coughs> molecular bonds to break. To Rebbe Hanina Mendoza, there was no difference whether it was oil, whether it was vinegar, and it wasn't a nace. It wasn't a miraculous occurrence. It was the same way Hashem told this to work, Hashem will tell this to work. And as a result of that, Rebbe Hanina Mendoza said the words, My daughter, it's no big deal. The same one who said oil will light will say vinegar will light. And in fact, 
that oil lit and remained lighting all the Shabbos to Rebbe Hanina Medosa <coughs> as nature, meaning Hashem running the same. Now, this is a Tana. And only a Tana gets to see this level of tremendous miracles. However, in Mitzrayim, the average person, the regular Joe Mitzri, Muhammad and Nahmud, while standing on the street corners, got to see this exact lesson with total clarity. When they looked at the Ya'ar, they saw a Nile River, a powerful river. And when Moshe Rabbeinu went out, when Aaron lifted up the staff, it turned into blood. Again, blood is not just colored water. Blood smells, blood is thick, blood kills the dog. When you take out blood, it has a different molecular structure, it has a different cellular structure. It's a totally different substance than is water. The lesson that every Egyptian saw on that yam was a very clear message. And that was that water is clear, odorless, and colorless, not because that's nature. Water is clear, odorless, and colorless because Hashem said that those molecules should remain in that pattern. The chemical bond should remain in that open. It should remain in that way, and that's how it should remain. However, the minute Hashem says otherwise, all of a sudden the molecular structure changes, the entire substance becomes totally different, and that now water becomes red, becomes globulous, and smells because it has changed in the very essence of it changes into a different substance what every mitzri saw clearly right in front of their eyes was the fact that every element of this world from rocks to trees to cells to animals to every single facet of this Bria is kept alive kept in its current form by Hashem constantly infusing energy and putting power into this that was a very basic lesson which they saw. Now they also saw tremendous miracles within the miracles. We're all familiar with the Medrash that a number of different miracles occurred within the blood. Not only was it the fact that the water turned into blood, but there was a very real control over the events. So the Medrash tells us a few interesting things. First of all, it wasn't just that all the water in Mitzrayim turned into blood. It was all the water anywhere, not just in the rivers, not just in the Agams, any water that was found anywhere in Mitzrayim. That means if a Mitzri hid away a barrel of water, it turned into blood. If he had a bath filled with water, it turned into blood. If he had water anywhere in Mitzrayim, it turned from water into blood. Additionally, unlike the way Rashi learns, it says, in the, in the rocks and in the wood, Rashi learns, that means in a cup, the Medrash tells us if a Mitzri bit into an apple, instead of spitting out, Apple juice, blood emitted from that, from that substance. What that means is, what the mystery saw with total clarity was that Hashem is the Bore Olam. Additionally, the Medrash tells us an interesting thing, that the Jews were able to drink water. That means, so all of the Jews in Mitzrayim, what they drank from their cups, what they had in their baths, was water. And the only way that a mystery was able to get water unless he was right by the Nile where he dug, was by taking the water from a Jew. Meaning, well, what happened was, and you have to understand, there's a very interesting thing going on. I was once illustrated this, if you could imagine the following. There are two people standing in the field. You have a, a Muhammad, the slave owner, and his slave Yitzhak. Now, Muhammad is standing there, and he has in his hand a cup 
and it's red and it's blood and it stinks. He's standing next to Yitzchak and Yitzchak is holding a glass of clear water. The Muhammad goes over to his slave Yitzchak and goes, Boy, what's in that cup? And Yitzchak says, Sir, it's water. Now wipe that smile off your face, boy, and give me that. As Yitzchak took the cup and handed it from his hand to Muhammad, it turned from water into blood. And you could watch the transformation. When Muhammad said, Now wait, take that back. So he took it back and handed it back to Yitzchak and it turned from blood back into water. That is an amazing thing. You're watching in front of you, changing water to blood, water. Now come here, boy, come here. Drink from that. So Yitzhak would stand there, and Yitzhak would drink clear water all the way down very nice. Now Muhammad would take it, and he wouldn't even put his lips to it because it stunk. So come here. Come here, boy. Stand here right here. Now listen carefully. We're going to drink at the same time. I don't want any tricks, so I'm going to whip you. At the same time, you put that cup to your lips, and we're going to drink. One, two, three, three. While Yitzhak drank clear, fresh water, Muhammad was drinking blood. Now, gentlemen, let's understand. What Muhammad saw with total clarity is that someone is controlling nature. But not only is someone controlling nature, someone wrote the laws of nature, someone controls it and created it, and someone tells it right now what to be, how to be, in what form, at what time, and is watching. The Medrash tells us the only way the mystery would actually be able to drink water is if not only took the water from the Jew, but he paid the Jew. Meaning, if he paid the Jew full price for the water, then it stayed water. If not, it remained blood. Now, you have to see that this is a nace that's so beyond our capacity even to relate to. We would assume, of course, that any human being seeing this kind of event would fall on the face and say, Hashem, Hashem, you are the master of this house, and they'd become all balichuva. The Mishram did not become from... But for us, this became an, one of the osim, one of the signs that a person uses to strengthen his amuna, to keep him in, in a state of understanding throughout his life. The focus of each makkah is to demonstrate Hashem's control, but it takes focusing in. Now, some thousands of years later, it takes our reading about it, understanding it, focusing on it, to see each miracle, to see the miracle within the miracles, and for us to fully appreciate and bring it home to our own understanding of Hashem's control over nature. Perak Zion finished, the end of Perak Zion finishes with the end of Dam, where <coughs> the, even despite the tremendous and obvious miracles involved, Paro still refused, and he went back to his house, went back to his house unimpressed. V'yom Hashem Moshe, Hashem says to Moshe, Bo'a Paro, come a second time to Paro, V'amarta I love, Send out my nation and they will serve me. And if you refuse to send them, Behold, I will afflict all of your borders with Svardea, with frogs. And the Yaar, the Nile River, will sprout forth with frogs. They'll come up, they'll come into your house, and in the place where you sleep, on your bed, in your servant's house, in your nation, in your ovens, and even the place where you bake the bread, where you knead the dough. And in you, and your nation, and all of your servants, the Svardayim will come. Now the Pasuk is very expressive. It's not just that there's going to be Svardayim, it's not just that there are going to be frogs, and it's not just going to be that they will 
be all over Mitzrayim, there will be, your borders will be filled with them, and they will fill your entire houses, and every place where you exist will be the Sfardeah. Place your hand with a Makkah. Now, keeping in mind at the very end of Makkah's Dam, we're told that Dam lasted seven days. We're told that the Makkah of Dam completed the week. And Rashi over there comments that each Makkah lasted seven days. There was three weeks of warning before the Makkah. That means the three weeks... Apparently, every day, Moshe would come to the palace and tell Paro, this is what's going to happen, it's going to happen at this time, in this way, in this manner. For three weeks, this went on, day after day, until at the completion, when the time of the three weeks was up, the Makkah came, and the Makkah lasted for an entire week. So we're now one month into this process over here. First, Moshe came with the various warnings, and he showed the Simonim, which lasted a bit, then there was an entire month of Makkah's Dam. Now finally, after three weeks of warning about the Svardaya, finally Hashem says to Moshe, go tell Aaron to raise your stick. And the Pesach says, raise your staff. This is the same, the same staff which has the Simonim written on it. Raise it over the rivers on the Agams and bring the Svardayim al Eretz Mitzrayim. Aaron brought his hand on the rivers of Mitzrayim, and the Svardea came up, and covered up Eretz Mitzrayim. Now we're all very familiar with the Medrash that's learned out from this obvious contradiction in Psukim. Moshe warned Paro that there were going to be Svardeim, plural, many frogs. In fact, we're told that the millions or billions of frogs filled the borders. However, the Pasuk is very clear, Vatal HaSvardeya, the single one Svardeya, came up from the river. From here the Medrash learns out that actually what happened was one single very large frog came out of the Nile River. And apparently this frog started a march on the palace of Paro. Needless to say, the guards, when they saw a huge frog, apparently it wasn't just a small frog, it was a huge frog, hippity-hopping over to the house of Paro, smacked it. As they smacked it, it split, and another frog came out, they hit that one, more frogs came out of that one. Each frog that they hit, they would hit, it would split, hit, split, hit, split, until it would multiply and multiply and multiply, and as they would hit it, it would split again, until it would completely fill the borders of Mitzrayim. Now, this is a nace that's impossible to even be masik, to even understand. In other words, if you ever try this, and you could, I guarantee, if you try this at home, and you go into the frog, into the, you go into the swamp somewhere, you go into the, by, the, by the lake, and you take a stick and smack a frog, what will happen is it will squish. In the real world, when you hit a frog, it doesn't split into a number of frogs or more frogs, and those split more and more. The point is that something very, very unusual was going on. Moshe warned for three weeks this is going to happen, and in fact, the Svardeyas started multiplying and multiplying, hitting and splitting, and the, until the entire land of Mitzrayim was filled with Svardeya. The next passage tells us something interesting, though. The Khartoumim did the same with their Latehim, with their ability to, to control the spirits. And they too brought forth Svardeyas onto Mitzrayim. Now obviously, the Svardim that the Khartoumim brought were very different than the Svardeya that Aaron brought with the stick. Within the Nile River are a good number of 
Svardim, apparently they had control over forces, Malachim, Shadim, which were able to bring forth these Svardim, but these were existing frogs that were in the Nile River. The Khartoumim brought them forth. Quite and clearly different to, than the Svardim that were, that were actually brought forth by Moshe. Now, understanding what's going on here requires a little bit of, of thought. First of all, one quick comment that the the Chavetz Chaim, who was known as a reasonably serious person, was one time learning Chumash, and someone was there, and when he was being Mavis Sedra, he was in Parsha Vaira, and in the middle of being Mavis Parsha, he starts laughing. Mavis, like laughing. So afterwards, the person who was there asked him, really, Chumash was so funny. So, so the Chavetz Chaim says, I was learning Chumash, and learning about imagining the, the scene. Imagine Paro, fancy king, sitting on his throne, very important person, and imagining that there's frogs, frogs under his shirt, frogs under his pants, he's sitting on one, it splits, he's at the split, frogs jumping all around. It's very funny. And if you think about it, it is humorous. What Hashem was doing was not just bringing a maka, he wasn't just afflicting, he wasn't just bringing a plague, what he was doing was he was playing with the midstream. As a matter of fact, the Pasuk is very expressive. Asher hisalalti min Mitzrayim, what he said at the end, Hashem says, I want you to remember and teach your children that I played with the midstream. There was almost, a, I don't know if the connotation of humor involved, but Hashem was literally toying, playing with the midstream. And if you can imagine, a room filled with frogs, up, jump, down, and anywhere you hit them, it splits and splits and splits. Now, gentlemen, I want to make an interesting observation. If you think about how many frogs there exist in Rockland County, now, I've never done a study, but there are rivers, there are lakes, and there are various places where there are frogs. If you take all of the frogs in all of Mitzrayim, I guarantee there are enough to fill a very small a block, two blocks, ten blocks worth of houses, how many frogs there? Yet the entire Mitzrayim, that means miles upon square miles upon square miles, is filled everywhere. That means every room, there are literally thousands upon thousands of Svardim all over, jumping, jumping, running, and it lasted for seven days. It means for seven days, the Mitzrayim could not sit without squishing a frog. They couldn't step without stepping on and splitting again. It comes in the pants, and it comes in their shirt, and it can't eat. They could not eat peacefully for seven days. Why? Because the Pasuk is very clear. These frogs are not only going to go into your bed where you sleep, they're not only going to go into your bedroom, they're not only going to go into your ovens, they are going to go becha into you. The Medrash tells us that in fact the frogs would jump down the throats of the Mitzrim, and from within their belly they would rib it. Rib it, I don't know exactly how they live, but if Hashem is capable of creating frogs that split, somehow the frog lived within the stomach, rib it, rib it from within for seven days. Now we think of it just a cute, mock a cute, jumping frog. Seven days, no eating, no sleeping without these stupid frogs here. Stop it, leave me alone. Do you ever hear the frog? It's noisy, it's annoying, and more than that, you know that you're being toyed with. It's almost a joke. It's like, oh, the frog jumping here in my shirt. Am I? You're being toyed with. You know that you're being played with. As a matter of fact, these Svardim were very unique. These frogs were unusual. Frogs, like any animal, are given an instinct for self-preservation. Yet, the Pasuk is very explicit that these specific frogs will not only go into the kneading area where you knead your bread, they will go into the tanurim, they will go into your ovens. 
a frog will not by nature go into an oven. An oven is hot. And the frog, if it goes into an oven, will die. It will avoid the oven. These were programmed. Remember, within each animal there is a nefesh habahami. Hashem implants a nefesh to keep that behemoth alive. Implanted with the nefesh habahami of these frogs was an instinct different than normal. These frogs had an instinct to jump into ovens. They had an instinct to jump down people's throats. And in fact, if you'll note, at the very end, the frogs all died. All the frogs that were in the houses, all the frogs that were in the rooms, all the frogs that were b'cha in you, but not the frogs in the oven. The frogs that had jumped into the oven that should have been burnt to a crisp were left alive. Those frogs only were left alive, and the frogs that were in, they went back to the R, and the ones in the R who were already in the Nile remained there. What we're witnessing here is a phenomenal control over nature and over another aspect of nature, over living creatures. And we're witnessing animals do things that are, that are just remarkably out of the norm. And if you can imagine being a mystery there, you would have to assume you become a, a total, complete believer in Hashem. Moshe said for three weeks straight, I'm telling you, they're going, there's a plague, the entire land of Egypt is going to be covered with frogs. And he said it day after day, and to the exact moment, as he said it, this frog comes up, hits split, hits split, and millions upon billions upon billions of frogs are all over Mitzrayim. And let's imagine for a minute that your name is Nachmad, and you saw that your friend Muhammad was afflicted by frogs. And they're jumping and jumping, and finally you saw that your friend Muhammad had his mouth open, and one frog jumped down his throat, and you see it riveting from within. You hear it. So you say to yourself, well, listen, I may be dumb, but there ain't no frog that's going down my throat. So you're a wise mystery, and you decide you're going to clamp your mouth shut, and there ain't no frog that's coming down my throat. Now let's imagine this is day one of the Makkah. So you got it all taken care of. Duct tape over your mouth. When you're going to sit down and eat, you actually put a hand in front. So you quickly, you know, you have to imagine, here's your bowl, and here's your hand in front of the bowl, and there are frogs jumping and frogs. By the way, when a Jew poured a cup, when, if a cup was poured, the, the Medrash tells us frogs were pour, pouring out of the cups. There were so many frogs all over that if you poured a cup of water, instead of just water, there were frogs literally pouring out. So there you are, the mystery is jumping in your Cheerios and the milk is spilling. Stop it, you stupid frog! Your frog is not going down my throat. So during breakfast, you're pretty good. You know, you sit there with the bowl, you keep one hand over and you look this way, look that way and get the spoon and, and when the frog moves out, you quickly put your hand and get the spoon in. Okay, you're doing alright. You got through breakfast pretty well and even at night, again, you put the duct tape on. You're pretty much through day one, through day two, day three. Now you're exhausted because again, when you lie in bed, and these stupid frogs do not stop jumping and moving. And they, they don't lie still in bed. They're in your clothes. And he goes, stop it! You can't sleep at night. The ribboning and the motions. And again, every time you slap one of them because you're rightfully angry, it splits and you have more of them. So day four and day five, Nachman still, he's got it. He is not getting a frog down his throat. Day six, he knows he's in big trouble. Because on the windowsill, he sees Kermit. And he goes left... And Kermit goes left. He goes right. And Kermit goes right. He goes forward. And Kermit goes forward. I'm being stalked by a frog. A frog is stalking me. Oh no. And this Kermit is aiming. Kermit looks at him. And he looks at Kermit. And he knows that there's stupid frog. And Kermit goes down his throat. Ribbit. in you. What you're witnessing. Rebunded al you're watching something that's so 
frighteningly abnormal. Seven days of this, and after the month of Dam, maybe, uh, sir, <coughs> maybe there's a God in the world. But what happens? What happens is that Paro, Vayikra Paro Moshe, finally Paro calls Moshe Olar and stop! Hatir Hashem, beg Hashem. Listen to what Paro says. Beg Hashem. Paro doesn't say stop. Don't tell your Kishuf to stop. Don't tell your Machshifim. Beg Hashem. Because Paro knows Hashem. Paro is well aware of the truth. Hatir Hashem, Vyasar Svadim, Imenu Me'ami. Get these frogs out of here. Veshlachasam, I'll send the nation. Vyasbuchul Hashem, bring your carbon to Hashem. Vyoma Moshe Paro. So Moshe says to Paro, very cool, calm and collected. His parallel light, tell me, Lamasai, when Atir Lacha, Tell me when you want the frogs to go. Now Moshe had very, a very specific point in mind when he said this. Tell me when you want. Do it tomorrow. Now the Chizkuni makes an observation here. If this plague is so much afflicting you, so torturesome, that you're begging your enemy, right? When Moshe and Aaron show up at the palace, they're not welcome guests. These are the enemy who are demanding the Jewish nation go. You, the, the oppression, the, the strength of the mock is so overpowering that you beg them to come forward. So, get, when should I get rid of the mock? And now, get rid of it today, immediately. Wouldn't have it in three seconds. Have a, no, wait till tomorrow. Why did, why did Moshe ask when they should get rid of it? And Paro says, wait till tomorrow. So the Rishonim tell us that actually Paro thought there was something going on here. He thought that this, there were certain kochavim, there were certain mazolas that were controlling this plague. Moshe was a very wise Balkishuf, a very wise black magician. He knew the timing of when these frogs were to come and when they would go away. And if I tell him to do it at a given time he won't be able to control it because it's already set in a particular pattern according to the stars and maybe this is a type of Kishuf therefore when Moshe said when do you want me to take away meaning I'm going to show you that the Hashem is totally in control not, not controlled by any time not controlled by any mazolas and Paro says I don't believe you let's do it l'machar let's do it tomorrow not now tomorrow and again what you're witnessing is an extraordinary ex- example of obstinance, of stubbornness, because Paro knew, but at the same time that he knew, we're going to soon see that there was another whole deep ideological war going on between Paro and between Moshe. In any case, the Sarasvardim, Moshe says, no problem, when you ask me, as you tell me, Lamachar, and the Medrash says, Moshe took a stick and put it on the wall and said, when the sun comes to this point tomorrow, then the Svardim will disappear. Vayetze Moshe Aaron, Moshe Aaron went out, Moshe Daven to Hashem, and in fact, when the sun reached that point, exactly where he made a line on the wall, at that point exactly all of the Svardim died. Vayas Hashem Tzvar Moshe, Vayemusu Svardim, Hashem did as Moshe asked, the Svardim died, min abatim, min achatzerus, from the sodos, from the houses, from the chotzers, from the fields, there were literally billions upon billions upon billions of dead frogs. They gathered them together, huge, huge piles. Again, if you can imagine, within a room, thousands and thousands of frogs jumping here on the ceiling, on the beds, all over. When they die, they make a huge, huge pile. But not only did they make a huge pile, but Tivasha'ar, it's the land stunk. 
each person in Medjusset had ten, at least ten huge piles of frogs. You sweep them out, you get them out of the desk, you get them out of the bed, you sweep the pile, and the pile is starting to decay and decompose, and there's a stench. The Rishonim tell us the reason why there was a stench was because this was supposed to be another sign to Paro. When all the other makas ended, they ended. But even after this maka was done, there were still the corpses, the dead frogs, and it stunk. It let out a stench and you could smell it and know that it was there. Vayar Paro Kaisar Avocha, when Paro sees that there's a letting up. The maka didn't end, because you still have these huge piles. It didn't really end, but it's still there. The hich bidis libo, he hardened his heart. Lo he didn't listen to them. Kashet dibar Hashem, as Hashem said. Even with these huge, huge piles, which you can't even begin burning, and you have to start an entire process to get rid of, they did not join forces with Hashem. They did not do tshuva, and he did not let the Jewish people go. Now, I'd like to spend a minute or two understanding what exactly it is that, Mo- that Moshe showed Paro in this Makkah that was well beyond what Paro had seen in the previous Makkah. And that is the following interesting observation. There's a difference between what Moshe showed Paro in this particular Makkah of Svardaya was something that had not been shown before. In the first Makkah, what Hashem showed clearly was that Hashem created nature and maintains all facets of the Bria. But that only shows that Hashem created the form, the actual matter, the molecules, and then held together that matter in a particular way so that it has a function. Form and function is what Hashem showed during the first Makkah, Dam, that Hashem controlled. However, in this Makkah, there was something that went miles and miles beyond that that Hashem showed control over. And that is something that modern man is a little bit unaware of. You'll hear oftentimes the American Indians discuss a concept which may sound familiar to some people. They'll discuss the spirit of the Mother Earth, the spirit of the tree, the spirit of the sun. Now, if you're familiar with good old-fashioned Ovde Avarazara, you'll recognize those terms, because in fact, that is what, for many centuries, in fact, millennium, people worshipped. People worshipped the spirit of the sun. People worshipped the spirit of the moon. People worshipped the spirit of fire. That was Avodah As a matter of fact, the Rambam says, if you're a little kid in Cheder, they teach you that the old Avodah people served Avodah were a bunch of, uh, they were a bunch of uh, fools. I mean, you bow down to a tree. Oh, great tree, you created me. Oh, great totem pole, you made me. Says the Rambam, you're misunderstanding completely what Avodah is. Avodah is a very intelligent and very wise thing that's going to end in your demise, but it is as follows. Hashem created physical matter, and Kineged, opposite everything physical in the world, Hashem made a spirit, a Ruchni type of entity, to keep that physicality in existence. Last session we discussed that when Hashem brought forth matter, unlike a physical Bria, when you take something in existence and bang together two pieces of wood, you're taking two existing items and merely placing them together, when Hashem created a Yesh Me'ayin, something from nothing, that's a very different type of creation. 
when Hashem brought forth matter, every single element of this earth, Hashem brought forth a physical component and a spiritual component opposite that to keep that running and to keep that in existence. So that in fact, the sun does have a spirit. The moon has a spirit. There is a Ruchni body that accompanies the sun when it travels in its course and in fact controls the sun. There is a Ruchni body that occupies the space of the moon and keeps the moon in its proper orbit where it should be doing. And in fact, Hashem invested great kochos, great energies and powers into these spirits. However, Hashem, who is the Bore Olam, the one who created and the maintainer of the world, keeps every facet, every nature, every element of the physical world and the spiritual world in existence. None of these kochavim or mazalos or any powers have strength without, outside of Hashem. They only exist because Hashem created them and maintains them, and all of them dutifully follow Hashem's will. However, if one is reasonably sophisticated, they can sense and understand the spiritual component of a tree. They can sense the spirit of Mother Earth because there is a Ruchni body to Mother Earth. We're all familiar with the famous Medrash when the sun and the moon, when Hashem created them equal in the sky, so the moon was jealous and said, Two, crown, two kings cannot wear one crown, so Hashem was Mamayat, Hashem made smaller the moon. That was a spiritual component of the moon that was arguing for equality, the can of two kings. That part Hashem was Mamayat, and, and then the physical component, the physical manifestation of that became lessened as well. In any case, this is something that modern man is clueless to. Modern man, with all his techno technological advances, with all his understanding, with all his great advances in science, is very, very sophisticated in one realm, and very, very primitive in the realm of spirituality. The Mitzrim were miles and miles ahead of modern man in their understanding of these things. For instance, Throughout this time period, we're going to see over and over that Paro calls the Machshefim, he calls the Khartoumim to duplicate the very same things that Moshe did. And in fact, when Moshe took the water and threw it on the ground and the water turned into blood, the Khartoumim did the same. They took water, threw it on the ground, and it turned into blood. Some Rishonim learned that Zachiz Sinayim was just an optical illusion. Most Rishonim learned that they literally were capable of controlling this. When the, during this mock of Svardaya, when Moshe brought forth the Svardaya, Aaron brought forth the Svardaya, we're told, the Pasuk tells us, that the Khartoumim did the same. Says the Ramban there, do you know how they did it? There were two things that they were very knowledgeable in. One was Kishuf, and the other was controlling Shadim. Balatehem means that they were able to control Shadim. A Shade is a spiritual being without a body, and they sort of hover in a free space. The Mitzrim were very advanced and very sophisticated in their knowledge of not just that Shadim exists, but how to control Shadim. And they did whatever the formula, whatever the process of getting the Shade to obey their command, and in fact, it was the Shadim that brought forth these mitz, these these fardea, these frogs from from the river. Now, this is something that modern man is clueless to. With all his sophistication, with all of the modern technology, Western man is completely clueless to this entire facet of, of what goes on in the world. 
Now the reality is that that's not the only realm that modern man is clueless to. If you ask a scientist to define something as basic as death, the average doctor, in fact, according to most understanding of modern medicine, death is almost undefinable. What is death? When the brain stops, well, we have machines that can keep the brain going. Is it when the heart stops, we have machines that can keep them going? In fact, you could have a person in a coma, completely dead for all, in all sense and purposes, but breathing, existing, with an entire, all of the bodily functions going on. In fact, it's a known fact that many of the systems of the body, after death, when they bury, after burial, the nails still continue to grow. There are bodily functions that continue. The reason why modern medicine has a lot of difficulty defining death is because death is when the neshama, the eye, leaves the goof, leaves the body. But the problem is that I, the one who occupies his body, the one who tells his arms to move, the one who tells his legs to move, is not physical. And I cannot be measured in physical terms. I am not tall, I am not short, I am not heavy, I am not skinny, I am not blue, I am not gray. I, the one who occupies, me, me myself who exists, am totally and completely non-physical. And modern medicine, which is empirical, which uses the senses and the tactile world to measure everything, cannot measure I because I do not exist in this world. That's the most contradictory thing you've ever seen. The most basic element of the person, me, myself, I do not exist in the world of modern science. Because modern science is capable of measuring, weighing, and defining physical properties. They're even very good at weighing very earth-real properties. They can measure light. They can measure gravitational force. They can measure electrical pull. But they cannot measure I, the neshama, the part of me that's the most basic of me, I myself, because that is from a realm that is non-physical. Science exists in the physical realm and is strictly a measure of physicality. I, who occupy this body, who the whole essence of me is non-physical, hence science is incapable of defining death because death is when I leave the body but I have no measure and therefore they're going to use manifestations of the I leaving. Well I guess if the heart stops he must have left, I guess if the brain stops he must have, we don't really know but at some point he's kind of dead. The point is that people back then, Paro especially, had a very clear understanding of these properties, of these forces, these spiritual elements and spiritual entities. What Hashem was showing was not just that Hashem controls form, not just that Hashem controls matter, not just that Hashem can take water and turn it into blood, or can take trees and turn them inside out. Hashem controls every live species, every element that's alive. The first mark of Dam showed Hashem's control over the domim, or the inanimate elements of this world. But what about the spirit? What about the nefesh abahami? When you take a frog and change its programming, when you change the physical nature of cells and ch change its programming so that when you hit a frog it splits, and a frog will go into the tanur because we said it should, and a frog will, will do go becha, go into a person because Hashem programmed, programmed it as such, what Hashem was showing was not only control of the physical nature, not only over the form and the fashion, but over the molecules over the, that make up the organs, the organs that make the organism, the nefesh habahami that's implanted into the organism, and every element of this world. We make a bracha 
in the, whenever we go to the bathroom, we say the most, one of the most wondrous things that Hashem has ever done, umafli lasos. Hashem, you did a wonderment, a wonderment. What is a wonderment? Well beyond the workings of the body, well beyond the fact that I could go to the bathroom, that my body somehow knows to take out the psolus, the non-food and separate the food beyond the fact that it knows how to excrete beyond the fact that all of the systems of the body continue to function is the fact that attached to that physicality is an ashama is a soul mafli lasos Hashem it's a wonderment what the Mitzrim saw in Mitzrayim was that Hashem implanted the Nefesh of Bahami into the behemoth into the frog not only did Hashem create form and fashion but every element of neshama every element of Spirituality is something that Hashem created and that Hashem controls. Perikhes Pasuk Yudbeis tells us the next Maka. The next Maka Hashem says, Hashem says, Moshe, Emerald Aaron, tell Aaron to taste Madcha, lift up your Mata, your staff, Ahaches Offer Arts, and hit the offer, the dirt of the land. There will be Kinim Bukhalaris Misraim. Now this Maka, Maka Kinim, was different than the first two in a number of regards. First off, there was no warning to this Makkah. Now, the Sephurno and the other Rishonim explained to us that the nine, nine of the Makkahs were given as osos, as signs, meaning only the last Makkah, only Makkahs Bechoros, did Hashem give as a punishment. The other Makkahs were strictly to be a sign, to be a simon to the Klaistral, to be simon to the Mitzrim, that Hashem is a sholate over the world. For instance, at any given time, obviously, Hashem could have had the Bnei soldiers leave. He could have had them escape in any which way. Each of the nine Makkahs was given as a warning, as a sign to Hashem's power, Hashem's glory, to be a simon for Emunah. The first two of each of the group was was given with a warning. For three weeks Moshe would walk in and warn. The last of each group was given without a warning. So this is the, 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 the Tzach group, the first group. This Kinim is the last of that group. This is the one that was given without a warning. So Moshe, so Hashem says to Moshe, tell Aaron to go hit the earth of the land and it'll be Kinim, it'll turn into, into, it'll turn into lice. Vayasu came, they did this. Vayet Aaron and Aaron put his hand with his staff. Vayaches of he hit the dirt of the land. The kinim was in man and in the behemoth, both man and animal. Kol all of the dirt of the land were kinim. all of So here we're going to see quite a number of nisim within the, within the nase. All of the land in all of Mitzrayim was turned into Kinim. What that means is, if here is Eretz Goshen and here is Eretz Mitzrayim, you could watch the border be jaggedly cut out based on, if it's Mitzrayim, the dirt, all of the dirt turns into Kinim, into lice. If it's Eretz Goshen, if it's the land where Israel is, then it remains dirt. The next Pasuk tells us something interesting. Vayasu kenachartumim balatehem. The Khartoumim, the black magicians of Paro, tried Bilatehem with their black magic, Lahotiasakinim, to bring out the Kinim. Vuloyachlu, they couldn't. Vatihia Kinam Adam The Kinim was in man and in Behemoth. Now what's very interesting to note is that the Khartoumim could not do this Makkah. According to Moshe Shonim, the Khartoumim were able to do the other Makkah. They were able to do Dam, they were able to do Sardeya. The Rishonim explained to us they had power both over Shadim 
and over Malachi Chavala, damaging Malachim. The Hashem created, they, there are certain ways to control them, but this they were not able to do. Now, we're all familiar with Rashi. Rashi tells us the reason why they couldn't was because a shade, which was the power they had, a power over shade, and shade is not sholate, doesn't rule over anything less than a kadasha, less than the size of a barley. Meaning there are limitations. If it's kishu, if it's donayde malachei chavola, through angels of destruction, if it's the other type of uh, other type of lateim, it's shadim. In any case, there's a limit to these malachim. That's how Rashi learns. But the Chizkuni says something that's so remarkable. He says, it's not pshat. He says, do you know why it is that the Khartoumim could not do it? Because what Aaron did was he turned the dirt into kinim. But the Pasuk earlier said that already all of the Afar Ha'aretz was turned into kinim. All of the dirt in Mitzrayim had been turned into lice so that the Khartoumim could not turn dirt into lice because there was no dirt left in Mitzrayim. There wasn't a drop, there wasn't an iota, there wasn't a particle of dirt left for them to turn into kinim, and therefore they couldn't do it. Now, the Medrash tells us that you would dig ama acha ama, meaning a mitri would dig ama by ama, foot after foot into the dirt, and there would not be dirt, but there would be lice, this swarmy, swarmy, yucky sort of things. Now, if you want to understand what this maka is, this is what seems like a very innocent maka. No one should die. No one should be particularly, certainly not disabled. But you have to understand what Hashem was doing with this particular maka. If you look on your hand, you'll note that there are many little holes. Now, especially if you have hair growing, you'll see that the hair follicle actually comes out of a little hole in your skin. Lice are very, very tiny. What lice just love to do is they love to put their jaws into that little hair follicle, right, with the root of the hair, into the hole of skin, and burrow, they love to burrow in there, and there lay their eggs. Now, if you've ever had lice check in school, what they do is they look in your hair, because, again, lice love to get into those little holes, and they'll find the little lice. What they do is they pull it out. As soon as you pull it out, the body rips, and the jaw is left inside the, uh, the little follicle. Now it's a pain in the neck. In every school they do lice checks and they'll find a lice in the hair and they'll, put, they'll give the kid a haircut and all kinds of things to disinfect the kid. Why? Because lice have a habit of replicating, duplicating, whatever, more generation, next generation. And if you have one lice egg in your hair, before you know it, you're 200, 2000, and everyone else in the class gets it also. Now, these lice were all over Mitzrayim. That means every little hair follicle, again, that little lice gets into that little hole, sticks his jaw and puts in the teeth. Well, it wasn't one, it wasn't a thousand, it wasn't millions, it was billions and billions. Wherever a mystery was, there was lice. That means on the tables, on the chairs, on the floor, on the bed, all of the ground, all of the ground turned into lice. What that means is the lice were swarming all over and they began climbing and filling the houses, filling the rooms. Everywhere a mystery went were these lice. Now that they're there and they're annoying and they're swarming and they're noisy and every time you step you squish them and you so that's not the problem. The problem is that they climb onto the person. They climb onto the person in every hole in your skin they get into, and your whole body from head to toe is filled with these disgusting, tiny little scratchy creatures that are, you want to scream. And there's no saving yourself, because the minute you scrape off a bunch of them with part of your skin, a bunch more come on, and they climb up your bed, up your arm, up your leg, they're all over you, head to toe, the whole Eretz Mitzrayim, there was no 
saving. Says the Cheskuni, there are some Mephoshim who learned that the reason why the Khartoumim did not do it wasn't even because they were not able, but simply they were embarrassed. They were mole filled with lice from head to toe, every part of their skin, by their face, by their eyes, by their ears, by everywhere their skin, there were lice. And it is a very disgusting thing. Now keep in mind that each maka lasted seven days. Now this maka again didn't have the three weeks of warning, but it lasted seven days. That means when a Mitri lay down to sleep the bed on his nice comfortable pillow, was mully filled with lice, and he swashed them off and more came and more came, he couldn't even move, he couldn't budge without these stupid disgusting things scratching and itching and pulling the skin, and once you, get, once you pull your skin off, you get a cut, and then the lice get in the cut, and they get in... He would lie down to bed, scratching and itching and waking up with lice crawling in his ears, lice crawling up his nose, lice crawling in his mouth, up all over in every hole in his body. It was the most disgusting mark you can imagine. Now, the reality is that, again, it's interesting that it was not really a destructive maka. To my knowledge, the medicine certainly doesn't mention anyone dying during this maka. What this Makkah was, was Asher Hisalalti Mimitzrayim. I'm playing. Hashem said, the reason why I'm bringing the Makkah is to toy with him. Hashem is saying, I'm going to show you who is the Melech, who is the Bore, and I'm going to toy with you. Now, the Pasuk is also interesting. Each Makkah we know was brought for a Midah Keneged Midah. And you look in the number of different reasons brought in the Rishonim, brought in the Medrash, but each particular Makkah not only showed another part of Hashem's control over nature, but there was also a particular Midah Keneged Midah, which is always interesting to note. The Medrash Tanchuma brings a Midah here. He says it was for a simple thing. What the Mitzrim did was they asked the Jews to tend the bathhouses. Since they had to tend the bathhouses in the good old days, there were lice in all the clothes, and you had to shake it out, and you had to disinfect the, the, the clothes from the lice, etc. When the Jews did it, as a result, they got lice on themselves, and the Mitzvah used to mock the Jews. So because you did that, you're being paid back midah kenegah midah. What Hashem was showing the Mitzvah was not just that Hashem is the Bore Olam, not that Hashem is the Manig Olam, but that Hashem is the Melech HaMishpat. The Mitzvah, the fact that you enslaved my people was one thing. The fact that you killed my people is another thing. But nothing will go unpunished. The Mitzvah says that if a person thinks, let's say a person is big of Aryan, a person has major, major sins. So he thinks, listen, Hashem will pay me back for my major sins, but I don't get to worry about my little ones. Hashem forgets about nothing. Despite you're going to be paid back for your major issues, the fact that you killed Jews and saved you will be paid back. But not just that, even the little things, the little embarrassment that you caused the Jew, you're going to be paid back. And that's what every Mitzri saw for seven days, scratching and itching and, and not being able to be solveless. It's the finger of Hashem. They saw clearly it was not. The Kishu of Moshe wasn't just using the Kochos, the shade in black magic. And the heart of Paro was strengthened. He strengthened his own heart. And he did not listen to him as Hashem spoke. Kinim, which is the third market, did not do a job. And Paro did not send out the Jewish people. The Apostle continues, Hashem says to Moshe, get up early in the morning, go appear in front of Paro. Now we'll see soon that some of the Makas, well, Paro was warned about on the Yam, by, by the Yor, by the Nile. Some, the Apostle says, go to Paro. The Rishonim tells, whenever it says go to Paro, it means go in his palace. Unless you're told otherwise, in this particular one, Orov, 
he was told on the water. Paro go in front of Paro while he's on the Nile. He's going out to the water. Say to him, So said Hashem, Send my nation and they will serve me. If you do not send out my nation, I will send to you, your servants, your nations, and your houses, the mixed multitude. Arov means mixed. Now the Pasuk, when it says the word Arov, doesn't tell us what is mixed. But I'm going to send the mixed multitude. The houses of Mitzrayim would be filled with this mix. And also the land that you're upon. The Flesi Bayamuhazeris Goshen, and I will separate that day the land of Goshen, Asher Amiel made Allah that my nation stands upon, Levilte Yosham Arov, that there shouldn't be this mixture there, Lamanteda, in order that you know Kinyashem Bekev Arat, and I am Hashem in the land. Visamti Fiduz bin Ami bin Amecha, I'll place a separation between my nation and your nation, Lamachar Yiyeha Osazer. The next day will be this sign. Now Rashi tells us, what is this mix multitude? So Rashi says it's dubim, arayos, lions, tigers, bears, scorpions, snakes, the entire multitude of mixed animals, any mashchisim. There are numbers of, there are different types of animals in the world. We categorize it by domesticated and wild animals. All wild animals have a form of defense or attack. All of the mashchisim, all of the damaging animals, all the mashchisim converge on Mitzrayim. Now, according to Moshe Shonen, this was not a Bria Chadasha. Unlike the other makas which were brought forth from nothing, this was Hashem just took all the mashchisim all around the areas and they all converged on Mitzrayim. But the Pasuk is very clear that they will fill your houses. Vayas Hashem, Kain Hashem did this, they have a Orev Kovid, a very heavy Orev came based Aparo, based Avadov, and into the house of his servants. Bechol Eretz Mitzrayim, in Thailand, Mitzrayim, Teshachais Mipnei Orov was destroyed because of Orov. Now, this is the first Makkah that actually begins damaging people and animals. Now, keep in mind, an average mountain lion weighs somewhere around between 200 and 400 pounds depending on what region it is and how it was brought up. A full grown lion is about 600 pounds. A bear is anywhere from 600 to 800 pounds. These are huge massive animals and they converge on Mitzrayim, an entire legion, and they just start attacking Mitzrayim. Now, any Mitzri who walked in the street was either murdered or mutilated. He was just basically was destroyed. The wild dogs and the coyotes and whatever animals were, destroyed him. The Mitzrim understood very quickly what was going on, so they immediately ran into the house and locked the doors. Says the Rishonim, keep in mind that the houses of the Mitzrim were mostly dirt floors, except for the house of Paro, which may have had marble. The typical Mitzri's house was dirt. From the dirt up came all types of snakes, scorpions, and different things to bite them, to destroy them. saw the land was destroyed, meaning apparently it was a tremendous, tremendous amount of damage done to animals done to man, and it became very quickly a very damaging Makkah. Of course, Hashem says, I'm going to separate between the Mitzrim and the Jews. Now the Ramban asks, well, all the other Makkahs also separated between Goshen and, 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 uh, and Mitzrayim. Why in this Makkah particularly? Says the Ramban, and quoting the Medrash, this Makkah was particular in the sense that because a lion's nature is to attack, how does it separate from Mitzrayim and Goshen. 
It's unnatural. In other words, meaning a frog could stay in a given area. But these are wild animals, these are bears and lions they should attack. When a Jewish man would walk in the street, the lions, the bears would not touch him. Hashem separated between the Jew and the Mitzri, B'derech Neis, that a lion would not touch him and would only attack the Mitzri. And I always like to have a little bit of fun when I think about the Makas, because again, there's an element of, of not just fun, but a place Hashem saying, I toyed with Mitzrayim. So I have to imagine, let's say our friend Yitzhak, who has been a slave for the past 20 years to Anwar, is walking in the street, and he sees this powerful, massive lion. Here, kitty, 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 here, kitty, kitty, kitty. Oh, nice boy, nice boy. What sharp teeth you have. What very sharp teeth. Look at Anwar over there. And the lion goes and kills Anwar, and then kills Muhammad, and then kills Mr. Hickety, nice boy, nice boy. What a lovely bear. Oh, I love your teeth. Again, the animals were tame to the Jews. This was a mace that was a, a flaw. There was a, a pella. There was a wonderment that he would not touch a Jew, would only attack the Mitzrayim. What was even more interesting is many people are aware of the Medrash that says, that if a mystery was particularly bright, he was warned against this particular maka, came with three weeks of warning. Now again, we lived already, this was through months already. Dam was at least a month between the warnings and the maka. Svardea was a month. Kinim, even it was only a week. We're now talking roughly three months into this rebellion. So the midstream who had a head on their shoulders understood something's going on. Well, Moshe warned there's going to be these wild animals attacking, attacking. Some Mitzrim got wise. So some Mitzrim were smart enough not just to lock their houses, but to seal up the floors so that they were protected. The Medrash tells us that their own animals turned against them. So imagine that the mystery, let's imagine Anwar for a minute, he didn't get eaten yet by the mountain lion. He's got a nice little Egyptian dog. You ever see these little pictures in the hieroglyphics, these little Egyptian... Chihuahua. He's got this nice tame dog. He's had it for 10 years now. And Fido's always been a good little, I don't know an Egyptian name for a dog, but Fido, Fido's been always a good little dog. He's always been a And all of a sudden, at the time, at the time when it happens, Fido turns this and he starts to throw. What are you doing? And he hits the man. He's killing his master. But this has been the, the pet goldfish. He's had this dog for, for years. He's always been tame. And he, at the moment when Moshe says, he turns vicious and he's attacking and he has to hit the dog and the dog bites him and, and and then he has a cat, and his cat starts clawing him. His cat, his own cat starts clawing him. These were animals that the Mitzrayim had grown up and had lived were domesticated animals. They turned vicious. What every human being living at the time saw, without a doubt, was the wonderment of each maka, the amazing control that Hashem has over every facet and aspect of nature. Because again, if a Jewish man were to come into that house, and the dogs and the cats were pounding on the Mitzrayim, the Jew would remain untouched. That was the Jew who was always bothered by the Mitzri animal. The Midah, Kenege Midah, of this, the Medjur Antoma tells us, is that the Mitzri used to oppress the Jewish people. They used to say, the Mitzri would have uh, five sons, and he would tell the Jew, go out and get a pet for my sons. What pet? Get him a, get him a lion. Bring a dove, bring a bear for my son. And if the Jew didn't bring back the animal he was asked to, he'd be beaten. So Hashem says, you're going to do that, you're going to be paid back. Again, not even for the big things, not only for the big things, for the little things as well, you're going to be paid back. After this happened, after this happened, after seven days of this, Paro gives in and says, I'll send you out. Go. Go. Moshe, Moshe says, we're going to go out. I'm going to ask Hashem to stop. 
Vayetzei Moshe Mim Paro, and Moshe left Paro, Vayetzei Hashem Hidam at Hashem, and Hashem did Kidvar Moshe, Hashem did as Moshe asked, Vayasa Harov Mim Paro, the Arov, the mixed multitude left Paro, Meavadav Meamo, Lo Nishar Echad, not one remained. The older Rishonim comment here, not one remained is a particular point. Why did not one remain by the Svardeya, by the frogs? We didn't see that. Not one remained because there would have been Hanah given to the people. Had they had an or, had they had animals left, there would have been lions, I guess, tiger, they would have had the furs left from it, the or. or. Therefore, Lonisha Echad, not a single one was left. One more time, another element of the nace within the nace. The next makkah we're told about is the makkah of Dever. Vayom Hashem Moshe Bo El Paro. Now here the expression is go to Paro. Bo El Paro. Vidibarta, I'll speak to him. Koma Hashem, this is what Hashem said. Okay, Ivrim, Shlach Lemi Now again, when it says Bo, it means he went into the palace. He went into the palace. How do you appear in the palace? Again, a nace, Petorus, within a nace. Because again, the palace, as we saw before, was well guarded. And each time when Moshe would just appear, Paro gave specific orders to the guards, do not let them in. I don't want to see these people. And the guards were told, and the lions that originally had protected the palace before Baghdad was taken, were given very strict instructions not to allow anyone in. Yet, every time Moshe just appears, he's there, and he says, Hashem Loke Ivrim, Hashem the God of the Jews, Shalach Zemivyavduni, send out my nation and it will serve me. If you refuse to send, and you still hold them, the hand of Hashem will be in your mikne, in your cattle. Now we're being introduced to the Makkah of Dever. Now, Dever did not affect a single human being. However, every single sus, every horse, every camel, every chamor, every sheep, any animal domesticated, owned by a mitzri, died. Not just died in one fell swoop, like that. Now what's interesting that Ramban notes is that sheep, and apparently all livestock, was a to'eva to Mitzrayim. You remember by Yaakov, Yaakov told the brothers, Yosef told the brothers, say that you are, mik, you are shepherds, because it's a disgusting thing to, to the Mitzrayim. The Mitzrayim used to keep their livestock well away from the actual lands. As a matter of fact, most of it was kept either in Eretz Goshen or near Eretz Goshen. And therefore, says the Ramban, there was an extra special nace. Most of the animals were mixed. There were Jews who had animals. Shevet Levi were not enslaved, and there were also other Jews who were well off in Mitzrayim. And in fact, they in the end didn't want to leave. Many of them were killed in Makas Hoshech. There was a mixed group of sheep, cows, etc. They would graze together, and at the exact appointed moment, every single animal owned by a mitri dropped dead in the field, standing right next to it, eating from the same grass, drinking from the same trowel, was a Jewish, an animal owned by a Jew, that animal sent was left alive. And in fact, Paro didn't believe it. Paro sent out people to see. Paro sent out people to see if in fact it's true. Not one single animal died from Israel. The manager says, what if, even to the extent that, what if you had an animal that was owned partially by a mitzri, partially by a Jew, there was a partnership, that too stayed alive. Every single Jewish animal remained alive. Every single mystery animal died. Now the Chuskuni makes an interesting point. He says, if you note, this Makkah probably could not have lasted seven days. 
each makkah would told lasted seven days, but the problem is, when you're dead, you're dead. If all of them died at that given moment, boom, they all died, so they were all dead. Because Kuni says, apparently, you have to assume that this makkah did not in fact last seven days, but it was instantaneous and immediate. In any case, once again, the Mitzrim are seeing that the word of Moshe is true. Hashem is, in fact, the power, the Borei Emani Olam, And now they're being hit in a very severe way. They've already seen Dam Svardaya Kinim. But now, their wealth is being destroyed right from under their feet. Mitzrayim was the most powerful nation at the time. It was the wealthiest nation. Most of their wealth was either in, was held in agriculture, whether it be in, in, in actual crops, which they brought in, or in livestock. A rich man was a man who had 200 head of cattle, 1,000 sheep. That was a rich man. Their wealth was destroyed. In one fell swoop, their entire wealth was destroyed. And the land of Mitzrayim was at this point kimat desolate. Remember, during Orov, many, many animals in the field already had died. Many, many people had been killed. Now, during Dever, every last domesticated animal owned by Mitzri was dead. There were no horses, there were no camels. Keep in mind, how did Mitzri get around? If you didn't go by foot, you went by horse. You went by camel, you went by chamor. All of their modes of transportation were destroyed. All of their livestock, which was their wealth, were destroyed. A big food source for them was wiped out. And they were now in a situation where they were clearly seeing one more element of Hashem's control over the nation. Vayishlach Paro, Paro sent out and saw that it was true, but still, Vayich Badlev Paro, Paro hardened his heart. Vloshilech Am, he did not send out the nation, even despite seeing this clear demonstration of Hashem's control.